a couple of months back, I was reading Jackie Chan's autobiography. And when I was reading it, I was pleasantly surprised. I noticed that Jackie Chan doesn't get as much love as he should. But in today's episode, he's going to get some love because his lessons tie in beautifully with the purpose of this show, which is to teach more about soft skills in a practical sort of way. So with Jackie Chan, if you're someone that is a 90s baby, you know his movies. He is a beautiful blend of humor plus action. And when you combine the two, you get magic. But it wasn't always like that. When Jackie Chan was coming up, he was in what was known as Chinese opera. And these opera schools were pretty intense. You had to get a master, and this master would be in charge of a bunch of different students who had to learn singing, fighting, having the right posture, and much more. And if you weren't good in terms of executing the master's commands, then what would happen was that uh, you would get hit, okay? And Jackie Chan's parents at a very young age, roughly around the age of seven, uh, put him in this opera school, and that's where he got trained for 10 years. In the initial stages, being an opera student was good because you would get booked for certain plays, you would be the entertainment in uh, circuses, and a lot of these side shows. You'd make money, But eventually what began to happen was that the opera uh, business, it was getting wiped out by movies. Soon, Jackie Chan's master was not capable of recruiting new members. And Jackie Chan, after 10 years in this opera area, had to make his own name. And as he was making his own name, uh, there were certain skill sets that he learned during the past 10 years that transferred well over to movies. He started off doing uh, these stuntman activities. See, nowadays we get a lot of things confused. We see all these CGI stuff that's happening, uh, and we assume that it's always been like this. That's not the case. Before, for a lot of these action movies, there were actual human beings that were executing these moves. And Jackie Chan was that guy. But since opera was fading away and the movie industry was just blossoming, what happened was that there was a saturation of stuntmen. There were a lot of them, but not enough roles. Jackie Chan was so skilled that he was what you called the dummy. He would do whatever the director asked him to do, and he was able to build a great reputation for himself in that way. So as you can tell thus far in Jackie Chan's story, he is not only someone who is physically gifted, he's someone that has mental grit as well. That's an important thing to understand, especially in regards to soft skills. He's working on these stuntman activities for some time, and what begins to happen is that it's, the field is getting even more saturated. And as it's getting more saturated, eventually what happens is that uh, Jackie is not liking it. He realizes that he doesn't have much control, and he is under the uh, supervision of a director, which is code for uh, he's the director's uh, puppet, okay? And he doesn't want that. He wants to be a star. And around that time, there was a guy named Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee was seen as uh, the staple of what it meant 
to be successful, especially in the uh, Hong Kong show business. And the thing with Bruce Lee was that he could fight and he had killer charisma. He was laying out the blueprint for what a movie should be like. Uh, because before a lot of these stars that were getting um, put into uh, these films couldn't fight. So they needed a lot of stuntmen to show that they were fighting. But Bruce Lee could act and he could do his own stunts. And that's what made him special. And that's what allowed him to transform uh, uh, Hong Kong cinema. But if you've never heard of Bruce Lee's story, he died a very early death. I believe he died at age 32. And once he died, it looked as though the Hong Kong movie industry was going to die as well. Eventually, people were like, if Bruce Lee's not in a movie, why the hell are we going to watch it? Find another Bruce Lee. And this is when a bunch of these studios were looking for the next Bruce Lee. They would actually make a lot of these Chinese and Hong Kong actors change their name. Uh, they would go from Sung Lo Wai to Bruce Lai. Not Bruce Lee, but Bruce Lai. And then they would be framed as the next uh, coming of Bruce Lee. They were looking for every way to revive this dying industry. And eventually, Jackie Chan was caught in the crossfire. Jackie Chan was uh, going to be directed by Bruce Lee's old director. And plenty of people saw star power in Jackie. They noticed that he could act and he could do his own stunts. Yes, this man is going to be the next Bruce Lee. And for film after film, that's the mold that they were trying to put Jackie Chan in. And Jackie didn't like this. Because with Jackie, he was like, I'm not trying to be the next Bruce Lee. I'm trying to be the first Jackie Chan. And what Jackie started to notice was that We needed new ideas, right? That's what he was trying to tell a lot of his directors, but they weren't vibing with that. Uh, They wanted to get what was working in the past. They wanted these uh, these kung fu movies to be uh, serious uh, of this guy that's trying to get revenge on someone that did him wrong. This is going to be a serious movie the entire time. But Jackie, he was a funny guy. Whenever he was with his buddies, he's over here doing these sarcastic pranks. He had full control over his body. So he was someone that can do these kung fu uh, tricks, but he's capable of making his face in a very weird sort of way uh, to make it seem like a funny thing. There was one guy that believed in Jackie uh, because around uh, this time of trying to revive Jackie Chan as the next Bruce Lee, his first five I would say five to first seven films were duds. A lot of distribution channels were being warned that Jackie Chan is the box office poison. Do not distribute any of his films because you're not going to make any money. This was the reputation that Jackie Chan was building in his career until one director one day sat Jackie down and was like, what do you want to do? And Jackie, up until this point, had always been executing orders of other people. And this was one of the first times when someone said, what do you want to do? And Jackie said what he wanted to do. He said he wanted to blend Kung Fu with comedy. And he wanted to do it in a way 
not to denigrate the past, but to bring in a new future. That's what he did. And once Jackie Chan stopped trying to be the next Bruce Lee, and when he decided to be the first Jackie Chan, that's when he had his first box office hit. And you want to know something? That box office hit was eventually more popular than a lot of Bruce Lee's films. This went on to show that at times, following someone else's footsteps is the smart thing to do. But other times, you need to create your own path. And this is what soft skills is about, where we're using our imagination. Jackie Chan eventually went on to have an amazing career. And his career, I would say, parallels Michael Jackson's in many ways. Uh, what Michael Jackson is to music, Jackie Chan is to film. And what I mean by this is that Michael Jackson was capable of doing all three. Uh, he could write his own songs, he could dance, and uh, he could sing. Okay? The three-headed monster. And with Jackie Chan, he could do his own stunts, he could act, and he could direct. This is what having control of your imagination allows you to do in terms of your life. Uh, you have more control, okay? And we at this point need to understand the difference between imagination and creativity. A lot of folks confuse the two. Have you ever met that one person who keeps talking about the, the law of attraction? They're like, look, if you can see it and you believe it, then you can achieve it. And in 2018, a lot of these law of attraction content was getting a lot of great publicity. They're like, yeah, um, read, think, and grow rich. It talks a little bit about law of attraction. And it was getting a lot of great publicity. But by 2021, law of attraction became a joke by large groups of people because a lot of people were just stuck on imagination. But they weren't talking about creativity enough. And here's the difference. Imagination is what I call a potential energy, while creativity is what I call kinetic energy. And it's best when you have both. Let me tell you a quick story about the time when I learned about the difference. When I was first creating my website, the web developer also happened to be a great photographer. And he said, Armani, since you're uh, getting a website built with me, I'm going to go ahead and give you a free photo shoot. So your boy was over here trying to get his modeling on, or a nice suit, and I was taking a bunch of pictures. After we had the pictures, we came to Starbucks, and we were deciding how to design the site, just so it has the maximum aesthetics. And that's when I noticed that this web developer was uh, technically sound in building a website, but he didn't quite understand the aesthetic appeal of how to build a website. He was sitting on my left. And as we're over here bickering about where certain of these images should go, there was a guy to my right. He was a homeless man, a smelly homeless man, but an enlightened homeless man nevertheless. He said, uh, hey, you. He nudges at me. I said, what's up, homeless man? He said, this picture that you're trying to put on this third page, this should be your home picture. That's when I tell the guy to my left, hey, bring that picture to home. He did it. And once he did it, I looked at it and I thought, whoa, 
this looks amazing. How have we been missing this the entire time? And I look at the guy, the homeless guy again, and I say, what else can you do? And that's when he says, well, this picture, it should come over here because the lighting and stuff, uh, the color gradients, he's using all of these graphic designing phrases, uh, matches this picture more. And I'm like, how the hell do you know about all of these graphic design stuff? He said, I used to be a graphic designer. And I was like, wait a minute, man. How did you go from being a graphic designer to being a homeless man? And I realized that a lot of homeless folks used to be at the top of their career until some bad stuff happened that took them away from the top. But now is not the time to ask questions like that. This man has crazy imagination. And this is when I started to notice something. The guy to my right, the homeless man, had insane potential energy in his mind. But the guy to my left, the web developer, had insane creativity. He knew how to use the tools. Now imagine if I was missing one or the other. Let's say the homeless man wasn't there and I just had the web developer. The thing is, he knew how to use the tools. He had the kinetic energy, but we didn't have as great direction. Now flip it. Imagine that we just have the homeless man in this scenario, but we don't have the web developer. And this homeless guy is saying, put this picture here, put that picture here, uh, shift these two pages. I don't know how to use the tools. He doesn't know how to use the tools. And now we're stuck. Imagination needs that vehicle to be let out. And to allow this vehicle to get out, we need to know how to use the tools. Now, at this point, some people are like, wait a minute. Uh, I'm team imagination, and someone else is going to be like, well, I'm team creativity. That's what a lot of people do. They try to uh, compare and compete two forces that are complementing with one another. It's best if you have both because it's a wheel. Initially, in the beginning stages, when you have great uh, imagination, it's not that great. The reason why I say it's not that great is because right now, I could picture a lot of great things in my mind. I could say, I picture me flying right now. But let's say I'm actually trying to fly. The law of physics is not on my side. It's like, with all due respect, bud, you can't fly at this moment. And creativity allows us to get that reality check. It's like, look, you can't fly, but what are you going to do about it? The imagination gave me the direction, but the creativity is now going to allow me to get real-world data. Once I have that real-world data, that's when I'm capable of coming back and fueling my imagination with relevant data points. And once I have relevant data points, that's when I'm capable of refining the creativity even more. It works back and forth. And the reason that a lot of these law of attraction folks were getting roasted, especially around early uh, 2020 to 2021, was because they were stuck on imagination. They were like, yes, if you could see it and you believe it, then you can achieve it. But they weren't talking about creativity enough. The thing with the law of attraction is that you're supposed to build that imagination and then get moving. If you don't get moving, what happens is that you're just sitting and you're picturing yourself flying too much, not operating in reality.
When you get lost in law of attraction with just the imagination side, that's when you become a little too whimsical. But once you get your limbs involved, that is when you become realistic. Okay? Uh, and I used to be one of those guys. I thought, well, what's the point of all these different phrases and stuff? Why not just work hard? And I believe this is where we need to understand that human beings are not simply logical creatures first. We need some sort of narrative. And if there is no narrative, what begins to happen is that we lose motivation. And never undermine how fast someone can lose motivation. Our brains are wired for the path of least resistance. We don't want to work. You see? So whenever you see a lazy person uh, in your company, assume that to be the norm. When you see someone that is ambitious, this guy wants to fly, that is not the norm. And that's the type of people that deserve uh, immediate promotions. However you go about it, give this guy more opportunities because you're not going to find more people like that. This person who's ambitious, I can guarantee you, he is not just operating within the realm of logic. He has some sort of narrative that has been cultivated within him. And how does someone cultivate any form of narrative? I believe it can happen the easy way or the hard way. I knew this one gentleman who um, was getting a divorce at my work, okay? And he was getting a very painful divorce as well. So I believe he was 43 years old and he married his high school sweetheart that he knew since age 17. And what happened was uh, three weeks before the divorce, and mind you, they have kids and everything at this point, he is going through his wife's messages and he noticed that she's over here messaging this one guy a lot. Apparently, this one guy was someone that she wanted to have an affair with. But in the last minute, she talked herself out of it. And she said, no, I love my husband too much, a.k.a. my coworker. And my coworker saw these messages. And he was in a pickle because he's thinking, okay, what the hell am I supposed to do right now? I mean, she technically didn't cheat on me, but she wanted to. But she talked herself out of it. But she wanted to. And he was stuck. Uh, he told this scenario to a, a few of us uh, when we were grabbing lunch. And even our table was split down the middle. One group said, divorce her immediately. The other group said, stick with her because she talked herself out of it at the last moment. Everyone has desires, okay? But at least she talked herself out of it. Plus, you guys have kids. I mean, you don't want to break up the family for no reason, right? And this is when I noticed him one day behind me. The divorce has just happened. And the guy is depressed. You can't blame him. And I noticed that he's losing all motivation at work. Whenever uh, the managers are telling him to do something, he's like, eh, I'll get to it. Whenever the managers are reminding him to do that certain task, he's getting angry. He says, hey, I said I'll get to it. Let me get to it when I get to it. All right? So this guy is the polar opposite of the ambitious person. He's not over here putting in a lot of effort in work. But you want to know something? This guy became highly ambitious in regards to his social skills. Uh, 
so he's 43, and how can you be social as a 43-year-old? And this is when he's introducing me to the Meetup app. He's like, hey, Armani, you won't believe it. I heard about this app called Meetup, and hold on, download it real quick. So I download it, and this was an app that showed a bunch of activities that were happening in the local region. And he said, guess who's going wine tasting today? I said, you? Because before he was a homebody, uh, but now he's going wine tasting. And he said, hey, guess what I'm doing tomorrow? I said, what are you doing tomorrow? He says, I'm going dragon boating. I was like, I don't know what the hell that is, but it sounds physical. And look at you, Jorge, you're a little fat. You're going to do that? And he said, yes. And guess what? I'm doing the day after tomorrow. And he had all these different activities that he was uh, going to be doing now. He lost a lot of motivation in one field, but he was gaining a lot of motivation in another field. So if I were to ask you, is Jorge an ambitious individual? If you were to ask me, I would say yes, but depending where you're pointing the magnifying glass at. Okay? And how did he build this narrative? Because we said all forms of great people, they need some sort of a narrative. Logic alone is not going to cut it. For a long time, Jorge may have been saying, look, I should go to these wine tastings in order to be more social. Uh, I should be doing dragon boating in order to lose some weight. This is the logical thing to do, but he's not doing it. What changed that? Heartbreak. Heartbreak is a great way in order to get some sort of purpose, get some sort of narrative. But a lot of individuals don't view it like that. Instead, what happens is that they go on this downward spiral. The reason that this downward spiral happens is because whenever you're going through a bad breakup, let's say it's a divorce, and you're separating from a person that you spent the last 10 to 15 years with, it's very similar to you getting actual drug withdrawals. Your brain is releasing a lot of similar chemicals as if you were doing withdrawals from actual drugs. And this is where a lot of people succumb to the pressure. What happens is that they begin to do drugs, they begin to do alcohol, and when you're in that state of mind, you do a lot of silly stuff. You may drive under drunk, this puts you in a further... Uh, rock bottom, which causes you to uh, get all these sorts of, if you ever get a DUI, I mean, it's going to be annoying uh, next couple of months. I've never gotten one, but I know people who have gotten one and they have talked about how their life transformed. They're just like, first of all, I'm never going to drink and drive again, but bro, I don't, I don't want to make any mistake again because you have so much busy work and that's happening. This person who just got a DUI, most likely is going to do some other silly stuff. And just like that, a breakup has taken off six years of your life in terms of productivity. That's because you keep going back to the bottle. But very few people are capable of doing what Jorge did, where he cut off everything. He said, I'm not going to drink alcohol. I know I'm going to wine tasting, but I'm, gonna, I'm really good at pretending like I'm drunk, even though I'm not. So he went to wine tasting and he didn't even drink. You see, he doesn't do any drugs. And in many ways, that's how he was able to get that narrative for himself. When you're in that form of pain, 
Uh, you want to do something to get out of that pain. And uh, one of the best things to do is cut off any form of narcotics, uh, get yourself out of that pain, and boom, just like that, a narrative has been born. This is how The Rock became one of the most ambitious uh, folks on the planet. Because here's the thing with The Rock. People don't know this about him. Uh, people think, okay, well, that's the box office bully. Uh, meaning that any movie that he does becomes a hit. This guy's a star. Nothing bad happens in his life. Incorrect. He apparently has gone through three bouts of depression, according to him. Uh, when he was uh, knowing that he was not going to play football, that was a uh, lifelong dream of his. When he got a divorce, and I believe something in a part of his career where he was trying to rebrand. And where many folks would have used three bursts of depression as an excuse to be a loser, The Rock did something different. He's like, nope, I'm now in rock bottom, and I'm going to rise above that. This process of rising is where the narrative is formed. And as the rising is happening, a lot of people are like, well, all right, I'll just keep focusing on the rising. Incorrect. You never want to forget the rock bottom moment or moments. The Rock's production company, I believe it's called Seven Bucks Production, something like that. You know why he calls it that? Because when he became a failed football player, he only had $7 in his pocket before he came back home as a loser asking his dad to pick him up from the airport. That was one of the lowest moments of his life. And Nowadays, as he is a successful man, what he's doing is he is using the lowest moment of his life and bringing it to the forefront of his mind. Nothing logical about that. But as I said, a lot of ambitious people are not logical first. Okay, They're very unpredictable. They're very weird. Um, and by weird, I just mean out of the norm. I don't mean they're actually weird in terms of social uh, skills. They could be very... Uh, intelligent in social skills, but they're still weird with it. The Rock uh, getting the lowest point of his career and bringing it to the forefront of his mind and making that the name of his production company, that's weird, but he still does it, okay? And this is a, actually an effect known as the Batman effect. This is where adopting some sort of uh, alter ego is can be good for you. Okay, because the mind does not like fuzziness. And when you're lost and you're just saying, uh, let me just do some mantras and call it a day, it's still a little too fuzzy. But if you have some sort of alter ego of your ideal, that helps out tremendously. And it creates this beautiful feedback loop within uh, this alter ego and yourself. And mind you, the alter ego does not always have to be an identity. It could also be a product. Uh, we were talking about Michael Jackson earlier. Uh, let's talk about him again. He had this iconic glove that was his brand. And he had th these uh, shiny jackets that he would wear in his concerts. Those were forms of alter ego for him. Whenever he wore it, oh, as, oh I forgot about that, uh, that hat that he would wear. I think it's called a fedora or something. When he would wear that, he was Michael Jackson. Not just Michael. Because if you know Michael, this guy is meek 
when you're talking to him, he has no form of presence at all. He is just this, hey guys, my name is Michael Jackson. It's like, wait a minute, man. You are the king of pop? But look at that guy. That guy has a flair, that charisma. He has 100,000 people watching him in awe. And you're that guy? He is because he strategically uses the Batman effect to his advantage. Now, the thing with the Batman effect is that it has the good and it has the bad. The good is that um, you have this way of getting into the groove at will. Let's say you're going to the gym and you're doing a lot of these workouts. Uh, you're doing the logical side of it, but you lack a spirit. Well, the spirit can be your headband. Whenever you wear that headband, it gets you locked in. Uh, no offense to others, but I'm antisocial at the gym. I go in, I lift uh, hard, and I get out of there. And when you get out of there and you're ripping off the headband, you remember that this session was a success and you set new PRs for yourself. Then the next time you're about to go to the gym, you see this headband again, and it reminds you of the success from the last session. You put it on, it once again gets you locked in. Okay, so this is one of the good things in regards to the Batman effect. Uh, it gets you locked in at will. And other times, success is measured by becoming your alter ego. That ideal is so great where it's like, wait a minute, this ideal is way better than me. Let me begin a lifelong journey to become this ideal. This is another way uh, the Batman effect is good. It gives you direction. Now, it could become bad when you are not capable of understanding reality for what it is. A lot of artists go mad because they don't know where um, art begins, where it ends, where reality begins, and where it ends. And due to this, a lot of these artists go crazy. A lot of them low-key become monsters. Have you ever watched the documentary Surviving R. Kelly? If you have not seen it, it is a fascinating documentary to understand how cults work. See, R. Kelly, there's two sides to him. There's R. Kelly. That's his alter ego, the greatest R&B singer of all time, making hits for over two decades. That's his alter ego. But Robert is who he really is. It's the monster. And the thing is, sometimes the alter ego can become so strong that you fall in love with it and others fall in love with it where they have no clue that there's a Robert around the corner. I actually met R. Kelly one time outside of the Trump Hotel. And, you know, I was walking, I see this guy, I was like, what the hell? He looks just like R. Kelly. And he was with a girl smoking a cigar. And as I'm just going into the entrance and I'm looking at the guy thinking, is it R. Kelly or who is this guy man he notices me making these subtle glances he says yo what's good and we talk for roughly five minutes or so I don't want to waste too much of his time and this is 2015 2016 uh, so I don't necessarily know about all the stuff that's going on I haven't watched surviving R. Kelly at this point and he's a very nice guy right he has this uh, he has this presence this larger than life personality that you will notice 
just by meeting him at first glance. You know, a lot of times we meet someone and we're like, well, what do you do? Or he looks kind of like a plumber. He looks kind of like an engineer. He looks kind of like a doctor. You're not saying anything like that with R. Kelly. The second that you meet him, you're like, this guy is an entertainer. I don't know what kind of entertainer, but he's in show business. Okay? And he's a big dude. Not a single bodyguard in sight. A very big guy with a powerful presence. And the thing is, let's say you are a girl that has dreams of becoming a famous singer. You have been consuming R. Kelly content, uh, songs since a child, and you meet someone like this. This person can easily sway a lot of impressionable girls to join his cult. Okay? Because they know about the alter ego. They don't know about the real Robert. And that's one of the things that you'll notice within surviving R. Kelly. You're going to initially think, wait a minute, man. A lot of these girls that are joining these cults, they must be crazy. They must be coming from broken homes. Uh, they were not loved. I mean, you know, the typical bunch that joined cults. You will be surprised. Not at all. A lot of them come from loving homes. Both parents are there, and they were these kids were treated with love from the very beginning. So why? Why are they joining these cults, shaving off their heads, and having this dead look in their eyes? It's because they are not capable of distinguishing the alter ego from the real man. And there's another way to look at this. Let's drop the alter ego thing for a second. Let's talk about why people join cults at all. Um, people join cults because they only see someone's YouTube side, but not someone's Twitter side. And let me tell you how I discovered this uh, insight. There was uh, this one blog that I wrote on ArmaniTalks.com, which recommended a couple of the best public speaking books that a person should read in their lifetime. And there was this gentleman from Twitter who got that blog and distilled it into an image of uh, the books. So rather than reading the entire 1,000 words, you just read, uh, you just see an image. And he tagged me along with a couple of other public speakers. Okay? I'm thinking it's done. Well, what happened the next day when I checked Twitter is that one of the folks that were tagged, that guy was furious because of one of the recommendations I put for the books. It was called The Million Dollar Speaker. That was the third book I listed in my entry. And this tagged guy couldn't imagine that someone would even recommend a book called The Million Dollar Speaker. So he's over here just tweeting away insults, uh, saying, I would never read a book like that. Shame on the person who ever created uh, this post. It's like, what the hell? This guy's a weirdo. I'm thinking that's the end of it. No. Instead, what begins to happen is that every three months, this weirdo would keep retweeting that post to his large audience. He had over 120,000 followers. And he kept retweeting his responses as well. Just think about how weird that is. He's literally retweeting his responses of him being mad to his audience three months after the incident occurred. Every three months. This guy is unhinged. I saw this guy on Twitter, and I'm thinking... I never want to see this guy again. Well, a year passes on by, and one day I'm on YouTube, and guess who I see again? I see that same unhinged 
a speaker who got mad at the post. And this time on YouTube, I noticed that he has a large catalog of videos. And I shuddered to think about, oh man, what kind of unhinged stuff are you talking about, homie? I click one of his videos, I watch it, and as I'm watching it, I notice something. This guy is very, very smart. He's wise. He's an eloquent speaker. I was learning a lot from his YouTube videos. And that's when I had to zoom out. I was like, on YouTube, you are such a smart person. On Twitter, you are so unhinged. Which one is the real you? I couldn't tell, right? Now, a reason a lot of people fall for cults is because they saw the YouTube side first. They saw this wise individual first. They built an emotional connection with this uh, YouTube side first. And then they completely ignored the Twitter side. Okay? And this is why I say never glorify someone's thinking processes. Uh, because every human is flawed. Every human has a YouTube side and they have the Twitter side. And people join cults when they act like the Twitter side doesn't exist and only the YouTube side exists. Cults are all around us, by the way. It's not just a sex cult that R. Kelly is starting and that's it. Apple is a cult. Because with Apple, you can go up to an iPhone user and say, look, fam, the Droid is a better operating system, uh, longer battery life, has more apps, blah, 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 blah. That's all they hear. They're looking at you like, I don't give a damn. I will never get a droid. I am team Apple. Okay? They see the good side, but they don't necessarily really care about the bad side. You see? And it's like, it's not a problem. Someone being in the Apple cult is really not a problem if we're focusing on society as a whole. Okay? This is where we want to assess whether or not a cult is giving a net positive or a net negative to society. We never just want to evaluate the cult as a standalone entity. It always must be compared in relationship to society. Some people join uh, cults willingly. They know about both sides, but then they say, oh, well, I'm going to join anyways. I did that before. Uh, when I was trying to j wake up at five in the morning, there was this one club that a lot of uh, people would join in order to wake up at 5 in the morning. I believe it was called 5 a.m. Club. And this page would consistently post motivational uh, posts, uh, insights, other participants that were participating in the 5 a.m. challenge. And I liked this. I said, I am going to be a part of this cult. And every now and then, outsiders would come in and say, come on, man, 5 a.m.? Why don't you wake up later in the day, right? And they're bringing in a lot of negativity. And I see your side, my dude, but I don't care. I am going to join this cult because it is helping me. Now, if we're evaluating the 5 a.m. club in relationship to society, is it providing a net positive or a net negative? I haven't gone into the metrics or anything like that. But just from a surface level, I would say, I would say, it's a positive because these guys are waking up early. They're getting a head start to their day. A lot of them are going to the gym. A lot of them are doing difficult activities before 
spending time with their family and such. I would say overall, it is a net positive. Cults are always not bad. And be very wary of folks that quickly say, that's just a cult. A lot of folks say that about things that they disagree with. They don't understand the philosophy of this certain group of people. They haven't taken the time at all to learn about it. But they quickly say, it's just a cult. These people are in a cult of their own, and they're just not aware of it. There are bad cults. uh, There are neutral cults that really give a damn about. And there are cults that can benefit your life in a meaningful sort of way. You must be able to distinguish among all of these. Because here's the thing. Human beings are recruiters. They always want to share what is working for their life and try to get you to do it. You will notice this whenever someone starts a business. I used to have these two roommates that would always argue, and they were so different from one another. Uh, One guy was a high-risk taker. The other guy was a low-risk taker. And the high-risk taker was always starting these debates with a low-risk taker. One day, the high-risk taker, he started his own business. He was going to start selling uh, supplements, and he was liking this process a lot of being an entrepreneur. He's one of those guys that will write a CEO in his bio real quick when he starts a business, and he wasted no time at all. He starts to learn more about this business. And one day he goes to the low risk tolerant entrepreneur, roommate, not entrepreneur yet, and says, you got to be an entrepreneur soon. And this guy that barely has any tolerance for risk cannot handle something like this. But this guy is just constantly being bombarded with uh, facts on facts, by the way, on why he should be uh, turning into an entrepreneur soon by this high risk tolerant guy. This is a classic case of one person trying to recruit another person to their line of thinking. They haven't even taken the time to understand who this person is. And if someone does not ask you, where are you right now? And where do you want to go? And they just tell you where to go. They are not giving you advice. They are recruiting. And this happens so many times where smart people will come up to you at certain times and say, you're doing this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. This is what you need to be doing instead. And they'll say, don't worry about it, bud. I normally charge for advice like this, but I'm not going to charge you. You're like, I don't give a damn. And you don't pay attention. And once you don't listen to their advice, they notice because they have a lot of pride in regards to the advice that they normally give that other people pay for. And now they start to subtweet you. They say, never try to help someone who won't even help themselves. If they don't apply your advice when you gave it to them for free, that means they're not interested in improving their lives. And they're just talking a bunch of reckless stuff. I always have situations like that happen to me where it's difficult to build friends as an entrepreneur. Uh, You want to build friends with different individuals, but it doesn't always happen. Uh, So whenever you see another entrepreneur individual, it doesn't even matter if you guys are in different industries. Uh, One person is in the long mowing industry. You're in the book publishing industry. The simple fact that you two are entrepreneurs allows for some sort of bonding. And when these entrepreneurs become friends, it's one of these long lost 
friendships. It's like, where were you uh, my entire life, buddy? And what routinely happens is that one entrepreneur friend eventually begins to try to sell the other entrepreneur friend. This happens a lot to me. I don't know if it happens to others, but routinely, I'll get this guy that I'll consider a friend trying to sell me on a service. I'll say no the first time in a polite sort of way. This guy is like, okay, well, in his mind, no means yes. And he's trying to sell me again. And I say, come on, bro, no. I'm trying to not be non-confrontational, but they're trying to amp up their sales tactics. And eventually it comes to a point where I have to lay down the hammer. I say, no, I don't need the service. But here's the thing, my dude, I'll give you some people who do need the service. But this guy's pride got hurt because he set his eye on me for some reason. And when I said no to him, it does something to the friendship. Not that it was really a friendship like that. I don't call too many people my friends. I call very few people my friends and a lot of people acquaintances. But as of late, the one thing I've learned is to create a middle ground. It's what I call acquaintanceships. Acquaintanceships is a dynamic between an acquaintance and a friend. For example, I run a uh, podcast with someone else. Uh, this is uh, we're co-hosts with one another, and thus far, we have talked a lot. A lot of these episodes go up to two to five hours at times, and we have over forty episodes. So we have talked more than a lot of friends talk. So in this regard, we are friends when we are recording these episodes. But once these episodes are done, we are not saying, "Hey, bud, uh, I'll talk to you later today." We don't talk at all until the next episode. This is where we're acquaintances. Well, first of all, let me tell you the difference between a friend and an acquaintance. A friend is someone that you go through the ups and the downs with. And acquaintance is someone that you just go through the ups with. An example of an acquaintance is your barber. You don't want to go through the ups and the downs with your barber. You just want the guy to give you a great haircut. Ups, that is all. It is a transactional relationship. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type of relationship. And there is nothing wrong with having acquaintances. Whenever someone calls me their acquaintance, I say, yes. That means I don't have to put in much effort. I could just hit you up once in a while. You could just hit me up once in a while. And boom, we have a synergistic relationship. Okay, so that's the difference. Uh, A friend is someone you go through the ups and the downs with. And with this podcast host, uh, we're going through the ups and the downs in terms of the conversation. We talk about our good moments, the bad moments in order to make for an entertaining episode. But once we're done with these episodes, we have hard boundaries. Hey, I don't ask about your personal life. You don't ask about mine. And I will see you in another two weeks. Thus far, we haven't had any form of conflicts yet. You always want to put in that phrase yet. I I know it sounds a little gloom and doom, but um, when you're thinking nothing will ever go wrong, that's when a lot of times things go wrong. And this is why whenever a lot of these podcast situations happen, uh, these guys don't make it to 40 episodes. These guys can't even make it to 10 episodes because they're only trying to be friends with one another. One great way to see this is through the No Jumper podcast. 
So the No Jumper podcast is a podcast that talks about hip hop culture, and the founder, I believe his name is Adam Twenty Two. As of late, what happened is that a lot of the top talents left No Jumper to do their own thing, and it wasn't a peaceful departure either. There was a lot of animosity involved, and Adam couldn't believe it. He thought, "But I did everything for these guys. Why did they just leave me out of the blue like that?" And one day, one of the people that he was having the episode with, his name was Sharp. Sharp said, "I'll be real with you, Adam. I got your intention. Your intention was to create a work-friendly atmosphere. You wanted everyone to be friends. Heck, you started a group chat with everyone there. But that is why the podcast fell apart. You were tr- trying to be too friendly with everyone. Because think about it." You're over here working with these folks all day, and then once you leave, you're trying to go home. You're trying to enter your personal space. You have these guys blowing up your notifications on GroupMe. It's like where's the boundary? And when there is no boundary, these guys begin to take advantage of you. They're saying, "Oh well, this is just my buddy. Okay, I'm not going to be at work today, buddy. You understand, right?" It's just a pattern I've noticed, and I'm pretty sure more people are eventually going to adopt the phrase "acquaintanceship." Whenever someone that I'm working with is telling me too much about their personal lives, I quickly try to change the subject. I had this old school narrator that I was one time working with, and he was sending me pictures of his farm. He's like, "Sorry, Armani, I was one day delayed because I was feeding my cow in my farm. Look," I was like, "Uh oh, trouble is in the making." A week goes on by, and this guy begins to send me、uh, a picture of him in a family outing in Disney World or something.、And、I'm thinking, with all due respect, my friend, and I truly mean this, with all due respect, I don't give a fuck about your family. I know you have a great family. They look beautiful. They're healthy. Great for you. Keep it to you. I don't need to know this. And what happens? Two weeks goes on by. He says, "Armani, I'm going to be delayed with the project by just one month because little Billy, you know, the little Billy that I was showing you, he's sick, and he's acting as though that I have this emotional tie with little Billy just because I've seen a picture of him. It always ends bad. Have these hard boundaries, and with those hard boundaries, this improves the interaction more because we know what we're supposed to do." I've actually talked about this before, but I said the number one reason that a lot of conflicts happen is because people don't know their roles, and this can beautifully be applied to creativity. Because when you're thinking creativity, you may initially think these people are just winging everything. They have no structure. They have no discipline. They're just winging everything. Incorrect. The best creative people have. Athletic-like discipline. If you here's a little mental hack for you. If you ever see something that you consider junk, and let's say ten people who don't know each other call that piece of junk art, suddenly your perception in regards to this junk is going to increase in importance. This goes on to show that whenever people who do not know each other deem something as art, junk. Turns into value. This is a mental hack. So, if you are trying to collect something,、uh, 
or if you already collect something, you may notice that. You may view it as art. Another word hack is technology. Technology has the magical ability to turn abstract processes into something that is concrete. So if you go to work and your manager hosts a group meeting and says, team, we're going to be onboarding a new technology, automatically, a lot of you guys sit up and you're thinking, all right, playtime is over. Things just got real, okay? So art increases the perception of value in random products. Technology turns abstract products uh, real, okay? Now, the phrase athlete, it automatically infuses discipline into something. Let's say these podcasts, one day I say, I'm supposed to talk for an hour unedited. I'm feeling really tired. I don't know if I want to do this today. I remind myself, Armani, you are an athlete when it comes to podcasting. Suddenly, my nervous system feels a different type of way, and it infuses discipline to this act. It takes my emotions, everything out of it, and boom, I'm disciplined. See, I love discipline, man. Something about it. I love to play around with the word. I love to be disciplined in regards to the act. And this is something that I find highly appealing. Because coding is when you are programming a computer. Discipline is when you are programming yourself. And you will notice something. Great creative people treat their art like a job. There was one time that Eminem and Akon were making a song uh, together. And Akon, at that stage of his career, was someone that was more go with the flow. Whenever he's feeling that creative spirit, that's when he'll come to the studio and he'll quickly lay down the track. He was working with a legend like Eminem. So whatever Eminem's going to be doing, Akon is going to want to do as well. Well, one day, Akon shows up at 6 p.m. to the studio because a lot of artists record at night. And he asks the producer, where's Eminem? And the producer says, oh, uh, Eminem just left. He's been here from 9 to 5. Akon thinks, 9 to 5? Hmm, whatever, I'll talk to Eminem tomorrow. So the next day, Akon arrives at 9 and he sees Eminem there. And Akon asks Eminem, what are you doing? You are one of the greatest rappers of all time. Why are you showing up so early? And Eminem said, I treat this hip-hop thing like a 9 to 5 job. And when I heard that, it changed my perception. Nowadays, with Armani Talks, I try to treat it like a 9-to-5 job myself. I always consistently try to do the reading, the recording, uh, the consulting and stuff in a 9-to-5 time frame. Because if you're a worker right now, you work in a certain corporation, you may be thinking, this is not it, bro. This was not the assignment. I hate this. And let's say you leave and you start your own entrepreneurship grind and you think, I'm going to just do my own thing. You put CEO in your bio. I'm just going to be able to show up whenever I want to. And let's say you're successful for two years just doing that. Eventually, if you are going from year two to year five, you will notice yourself just organically uh, adopting a nine to five strategy. And it doesn't necessarily be have to be nine to five, but you'll discover some sort of eight hour work schedule for yourself. And you begin to treat your own business like a job. The good kind of job, by the way, because this is something that you have ownership in. A lot of these guys nowadays just keep talking about how you can outsource all this work. My thing is, 
if you're outsourcing everything, what the hell are you going to do? You should be doing work too. And if you're the boss, the CEO, what happens is that no business remains stagnant. The ground is always crumbling beneath the businessman's feet. This is a famous quote. And this is an applicable quote. So if you're over here just outsourcing everything and you're just sitting on your ass in a beach somewhere, one day the business dynamics is going to be so different where it just destroys your business overnight. And you're thinking, well, what the hell happened? What happened was that you're taking too much advice from these guys that were never in it in the from the very beginning. A lot of these guys are just building their business to sell it off to someone. But their business is not something that they want to own forever. The advice is night and day. And you're letting these guys brainwash you. I think it's much more strategic for the CEO to treat their business like a 9-to-5 job at the bare minimum, by the way. A lot of these CEOs work way more than 8 hours per day. But the bare minimum adds that structure. And us as human beings, when we have that structure, we know that there's no funny business or anything involved. This is my routine. That routine eventually becomes a ritual. And once it becomes a ritual, it's something that you want to do. Earlier, we were talking about the importance of having narratives. And one of the best ways to have a narrative is to just keep repeating the routine until it becomes a ritual. It doesn't matter what day it is. When I wake up, I am going to go for a walk. Sometimes, obviously, I'm lifting and such. But the walking thing is a constant. We have three minutes left, so let me just talk a little bit about walking. Why do a lot of the smart folks throughout history walk? Think about that. They walk because it is unique. Ernest Hemingway, Nikola Tesla, Jordan Peterson, they walk a lot. Okay, and I've had different theories in regards to this. Uh, one theory is the materialist um, explanation. The other theory is more so an information metaphysical based uh, explanation. The materialist one is that when you are walking, you are not doing a high intensity activity, but there's some sort of um, activity involved. And this beautifully uh, gets you out of your conscious mind into your subconscious mind. And the subconscious mind is your database. You have most of your stored memories in there. And at that stage of things being not too difficult, but not too easy, you're in that nice, relaxed state, you're able to engage flow and pull up a lot of these thoughts to your conscious mind. And boom, you have a lot of ideas. A lot of bloggers work like this. They go for a walk, they get ideas, they write the ideas, publish. Materialist explanation. But the metaphysical one, which is very unique to me, is humans are sort of like radios. All the information is out. And when you're walking, you're turning your body into an antenna and you are picking up the field of uh, information and you're tuning it to the right frequencies. And something about this definition just gets my uh, skin feeling right. Even if you don't agree with it or whatever, it just gets my skin feeling right. And I just the electrical engineering in me. It's like, oh man, when I was creating a radio, all we had to do was we had to build the radio. We had to make sure that it was working correctly. Then we had to tune it. And as we tune it, we realized that the information is already out there, but we just got to tune it to the right frequency. And I like that definition more. 
however you do it, try to get some walking into your life because this will allow you to be way more creative. Uh, do not undermine this, okay? You don't need to write drunk and edit sober. You really don't need to do all of that. All you need to do is you need to instill some sort of walking practice. And even if you don't want to do that, this is my ritual. It doesn't have to be in yours. Find some routine that allows you to have some form of peace. The reason that a lot of these creative folks go crazy is because they don't have anything. They're just winging it completely. And if you do not systematize inspiration, you will go crazy. So find a routine that works for you. Keep repeating it. The more that you repeat a routine, the more that you assign importance to it, and the more that you assign importance to it, a narrative comes alive. A narrative plus a routine equals a ritual, and I hope that you find a ritual that allows you to be consistent long-term. Uh, thank you very much for joining me, and I'll catch you on the next episode.